A note to our listeners. This minisode contains an extended, serious discussion on themes of sexual harassment and assault in Shakespeare's time and our own. If you're sensitive to these kinds of topics, sit this one out, and we hope that you'll tune back in for our show on Henry VI, Part 3. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our regularly scheduled programming for our first Bardflies minisode. We'll be doing these periodically to cover the shorter works of Shakespeare and various cultural artifacts related to the Bard. Today, a poem composed at a time when disease plagued all the playhouses of London and Shakespeare toiled in self-quarantine. The timeless story of Venus and Adonis. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is Bardflies, minisode one, Venus and Adonis. James, obviously a lot has been going on in the world over the past few weeks. How are you holding up? Well, I can't say that I'm particularly enjoying being stuck indoors all the time and being unable to encounter other human beings face to face. But all told, I would say I'm doing as well as one could be under the circumstances. Cooking a lot, reading a lot, writing a lot. What about you? Uh, about the same for me. Uh, I've got a stack of books on my desk here that I'm supposed to be working my way through. A uh, fair amount of research I'm, I'm doing, which has been productive, but maybe not as productive as I would have liked. Uh, and I end up taking a lot of walks in the in the uh, garden and cemetery near my house, which is actually a, a great place to get away, as, as morbid as it sometimes seems. I think it's important to get out of the house and, and make sure that you're getting some fresh air from time to time while being responsible socially distanced. Uh, Will, are you, are you still teaching in this period or how are you finding that working given the, you know, the social distancing requirements? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. I've been um, teaching this semester a course on the American intelligence community with professor at Johns Hopkins at SICE and we transitioned to Zoom and it's been going really well. I've been very impressed with our, our students' engagement. It's a little awkward, as you can imagine, sort of going from going from in person and sort of really getting a feel for kind of the cues of when people want to speak and being able to be conversational. But I'm, I'm, we've made the transition and uh, I think it's going pretty well, all things considered. But it's definitely bizarre and a little strange. It's very much... Um, Somebody made the distinction the other day that it is a course that is being taught online. It is not an online course. And that's a distinction I'd very much hold to uh, with my work right now. I like that distinction. No, no University of Phoenix this. No, no. God forbid. Uh, but yeah, it's going to change a lot, I think, in higher education. Hopefully in some ways for better, but I can't say that it won't change some things for worse. And I think losing in-person classes would definitely be a huge blow to, to good teaching, even though I think maybe this is going to open up some possibilities for pedagogy and just workplace for those of us that have the luxury of doing that from home, this might lead to maybe some very scant silver linings with that, making it more acceptable. But yeah. who knows? You know, I, I feel like a lot's going to change, and uh, in a lot of ways for the worse, but hopefully in some ways for the better. And and I don't know. Nobody knows how all of this is going to shake out and how it will be remembered precisely in the future. So, James, 
Can you get us started with the background on this, both in terms of where Shakespeare was when he was writing this and what actually happens in the poem? So, you know, we chose to do this to, to our listeners. We chose to do this poem, uh, which we were not originally intending to do as part of the Bardflies program, because it was written in a period of time when the plague had caused all the theaters in London to be closed. So we saw some resonance between Shakespeare's life and our own. So just to give some background on that, it was, the year is 1592. Shakespeare at the time was 29 years old. Uh, if you've been following the podcast, you know that he had been making a name for himself in that period of time as the author of misanthropic, not particularly good comedies and thrilling histories. You know, he had been working on his cycle on the Wars of the Roses, the third of which Henry VI Part Three had had its first staging earlier in 1592. That, for our listeners keeping score at home, is the play that we will be talking about next time on Bard Flies. Unfortunately for Shakespeare, though much more unfortunately for many other citizens of London, he had to put his dramatic career on hold for a little while because in August of 1592, cases of plague began to appear in London. Now, the bubonic plague had had recurrent outbreaks in England and indeed in Europe as a whole since the Black Death ravaged Europe in the mid-1300s. But this 1592 outbreak was worse than most. Uh, Will, I don't know if you are if you have any sense of the demographics of Renaissance London, but in 1592, London's population was something like 150,000, and over 2,000 people had died in London by the end of 1592 from the plague. So it's a pretty significant death toll. Theaters in London had been temporarily closed in June because of rioting and then because of the emergence of plague, sort of the decision makers in the government decided to extend the ban on theatrical performance indefinitely. So what what's a playwright to do when the theaters are closed? Uh, Shakespeare, who I imagine to be kind of both bored and strapped for cash while he's cooling his heels waiting for the theaters to reopen, sharpened his quill and turned his focus to narrative poetry, which had the obvious advantage of not requiring theaters, actors, or audiences. The first fruit of that effort was Venus and Adonis, which was published in 1593 and would go on to be the most popular of Shakespeare's published works during his own lifetime, which as it went through 16 printings before 1640. On a side note to that, whenever you look at the writing about this poem online, it goes into great pains to talk about how it's the most popular of Shakespeare's works in his own lifetime, but take that with a grain of salt. You know, this was a poem that was meant to be published and consumed by individual readers, whereas the plays obviously were meant to be seen on stage. So I, I think to take it as being that this is the most popular thing that Shakespeare wrote in his, in his lifetime is probably not quite, you know, reading the evidence in the wrong way. Right. It's it's sort of like if you were to go to the library of people at the time, this would have been the thing that you would have found that was written by Shakespeare. But that's only because the other plays had not been printed or collected. They were meant to be performed at the theater, whereas this was meant to be read privately. Yeah, I mean... In text. Right. If you... It, it would be like... Like buying one of Shakespeare's plays, I feel like, would be like if I went and I bought the screenplay for Parasite because I really liked seeing Parasite, you know? Like, it's just, it's not the way you consume the medium. So right. anyway, all of which is to say, I think that it's, you know, the claim of its popularity, I think, is a little bit overstated. 
the poem is based on the Greek myth of Venus and Adonis, but Shakespeare himself would have been most directly referencing Ovid's rendition of that myth in the Metamorphoses. In that poem, i.e. in Ovid's version of the myth, Venus falls in love with Adonis, who is a basically an extremely handsome, youthful man, because she is scratched by Cupid's arrow. And Adonis seems to be, though it's, you know, the, the rendition of it is very brief. So it's, you know, you can't read that much into it. But Adonis seems to be Venus's willing, though junior, partner. Uh, you know, Ovid describes Venus as Adonis's companion, who's so in love with him that she's willing to go hunting with him, which is very out of character for Venus. Uh, but she's only willing to hunt the safe beasts, like the deer and the hares. Most of the section, the metamorphoses that relates to the two of them is just a long section of Venus warning Adonis against the perils of hunting more dangerous animals like boars and lions, which is advice that Adonis obviously ignores, and that results in his death when he is gored by a wild boar. Shakespeare's version reads as sort of an expansion and reinterpretation of the poem that riffs on a possible subtext whereby Adonis is an unwilling subject of Venus's admiration. Not a ton happens in the poem in terms of events. You know, Adonis is a young man, seemingly quite young. In my reading of the poem, I thought he came across as being probably in like the realm of 14 or 15. And he is marked by surpassing beauty. And the goddess Venus has fallen in love with him. The poem mostly takes place over a day and a night. Venus comes to Adonis at the end of the morning as he's preparing to go hunting, spends the entire day and night with him, tries to persuade him not to go hunting and instead to have sex with her. Adonis is uninterested. He tries a myriad of strategies to get away from her. At one point, he succeeds. But as he's trying to mount his horse, his horse catches wind of a mare in heat and bolts, leaving Adonis subject again to Venus's advances. So make whatever connection you want between the lust-ridden horse and the lust-ridden goddess of the poem. Adonis continues to resist her advances. He always insists that he needs to go hunting. She tries to dissuade him from hunting boar, saying, you know, even if you're going to go hunting, hunt less dangerous animals. When he, in the morning, attempts to hunt the boar, nonetheless, he is gored in the thigh and bleeds to death. Venus, mourning him, more or less curses all future love between men and women and points to this, i.e. points to her interaction with Adonis as the reason that future lovers will always have strife. Adonis's dead body is transformed into a flower. So, Will, that's what happens in Venus and Adonis. Obviously, this is a major stylistic departure from the stuff we've already read by Shakespeare. Since we're in a time of quarantine, I couldn't help but wonder if Shakespeare's decision to do this poem was driven by the boredom of the experience of his own quarantine. Do you think that could be the case? Yeah, I think it could be. I think there are equal parts boredom and the need to create and the need to eat. And we're not talking about sourdough starter experiments that, you know, everybody is doing at home. Uh, I think in Shakespeare's case, losing the playhouses for a professional actor and playwright has to be economically debilitating, especially where there's no end in sight to it. And so I can see the pressure to write something for pay coming into play here, but also the constraints maybe pressuring him to, to write something in a new and different way. So, you know, by way of background, I did a little reading on this, and it seems like 
Shakespeare was commissioned by a patron to write this, the uh, Earl of Risley, who was a, a young man of 19 and had a taste for kind of ribaldry and kind of sexually themed poetry and so forth. And so Shakespeare sitting down to hash this out was an economic proposition. But I also imagine if you're an artist who's just cooped up at home, what else do you have? But but your pen and yeah, I mean, I, I certainly have found not to not to compare myself to Shakespeare, well, but you know, I certainly have found in my life that periods of time when I am most productive in terms of creative work, or not even necessarily creative in like the artistic sense, but even in the sense of you know writing mm. criticism or you know or whatever it is that I'm working on, boredom is definitely a driver for productivity, and I don't mean that in the sense of you have all this free time, you should be productive. You know, I don't mean in that sort of guilty sense that mm-hmm. I think probably a lot of people are dealing with right now. I mean it more in the sense of you just don't have anything else to do. And so it's like, well, how are you going to fill all this time? Right. There's only, you know, in our world, like we have a lot more entertainment outlets than Shakespeare probably did. But even so, there's only so many movies you can watch before you're like, man, I got to do something else. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think this is a strong case for the internet being terrible in in the modern era in terms of making us all very uncomfortable with boredom in various ways. And Shakespeare obviously didn't have that and additionally, no child-rearing activities at home. It's not like he was running a homeschool based on what we know. So, you know, in some ways, his productivity is, is kind of... A little bit of a different beast than in our own era, but I think the same dynamic can apply in terms of reaching the point where you just have to do something, otherwise you go crazy. And yeah, I, I sort of, I sort of imagine him as like a bohemian living in an apartment in Brooklyn, cooling his heels and just going out of his mind trying to figure out what to do with his time. You know? Yeah. <laughs> or, or repairing back to the, you know, to the family home in Stratford to be with his wife and children, and then similarly being like. How do I get away from these kids? Yeah, exactly. You know. Well, you know, it makes you wonder um, what great art will come out of, of this period, particularly if there's like bandwidth issues on the uh, on the wireless internet around the country. So, you know, who's who's yeah, to say? But that'll sure. be that'll be interesting to look back on. And and I think it's interesting that he's you know that he is experimenting with a new form, right? I mean, the poem mm. is obviously yes, the plays are poetry, right? Uh, which is, we haven't really talked that much about the plays as poetry, but they are. Mm-hmm. But this is, you know, whereas the plays are narrative in a very, like, plot sense. And, like, I sort of imagine playwriting in medieval, or not medieval, in Renaissance England and in Renaissance Europe in general to be a little bit like TV writing now, mm-hmm. where you're just under a constant pressure to produce pages. And right. sometimes that results in great stuff. And sometimes you're just trying to get something out so you have a product to show people so that people will pay the money to see the play that you're putting on. This feels like it's a little bit more contemplative and like he really has time, uh, I guess, by way of transition in terms of our, you know, the thing we want to talk about next. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like he really, whereas whereas the plays are narrative and plot driven and like very much you know, they move. This feels like he's taking more time to contemplate one 
theme, really doing a deep dive on what he thinks about it and, and what the consequences of it are. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I think in this case, he is also writing presumably alone, whereas playwriting, by its very nature, yes, you can do it solo, but there's also some documented cases of collaboration in Shakespeare's career, and there's also the broader social enterprise of playwriting, whereas poetry much more of a solitary pursuit and much more of a an effort by the individual artist to make a point or an individual contribution through their work. And and that kind of leads into this this question of what this poem is trying to say and how we can read it, uh, which I think is a pretty fascinating question. So it seems like there are a couple different interpretations that you can make of this one. And as our warning at the beginning of the episode indicates, you know, some of them plumb into some pretty, pretty tough themes about sex, sexual violence and other things. Um, So I thought maybe we'd, we'd try and like unpack that a little bit and look at the different ways you could read this poem. Presumably the terms sexual harassment and sexual assault didn't exist in Shakespeare's time. Regardless well, frankly, though those concepts may not even have existed as concepts per se, right, as ideas that are in the discourse, it feels pretty clear to me that Shakespeare is grappling with those realities. You know, the poem to me feels like an extended disquisition on the causes and consequences of that sort of misbehavior. And I guess the overarching question that I had reading the poem was, so, you know, I guess, I guess to go back to the text itself, right? I mean, though it's, though this is portrayed as a love poem, to, to describe it as a love poem, I think does not really adequately address the, you know, the tone of it or the events of it, given that Adonis is pretty clearly not into Venus's attention and frankly will tell me if you disagree with me the poem to me like venus's behavior in the poem reads like a pedophile trying to groom a subject she is truly creeping on adonis yes to to, to, so adonis as i said in my plot summary to me read as being like 14 or 15 he's constantly talking about his youth and, and, and the fact that he yeah. he's not ready for this kind of interaction. He he also he, repeatedly talks about how there's no hair on his face. Basically, he's very fair skinned and has none of the trappings of adulthood. Basically, I, I, I just I just want to read one particularly to me odious instance that is representative of Venus's dialogue to Adonis: "The tender spring upon thy tempting lip shows thee unripe, yet mayst thou well be tasted." Make use of time, let not advantage slip. Beauty within itself should not be wasted. Fair flowers that are not gathered in their prime rot and consume themselves in little time. Uh, Which, basically saying you're young and ready to be plucked, right? It is, I mean, it's kind of gross. Well, I, I don't know if yeah. you had the same reaction. but No, I, I definitely did. And, and sort of the Venus is predator is almost explicitly, I mean, it is explicitly addressed in the text, 
which I think reveals some of Shakespeare's attitudes or sort of understanding of what's going on. So let me read this passage to you that's, that jumps out to me and is very explicitly what Shakespeare is, is saying. Even as an empty eagle, sharp by fast, tires with her beak on feathers, flesh and bone, shaking her wings, devouring all in haste, till either gorge be stuffed or prey be gone, even so she kissed his brow, his cheek, his chin, and where she ends she doth anew begin. So very explicitly, Venus is a sexual predator in this poem, full stop, and she rapes Adonis. That's the, that is the clear direction that Shakespeare is pointing you towards. So clearly, predatory sexual behavior. There's also an interesting element here that I kind of wanted to grapple with because I think our own society doesn't necessarily deal with this particularly well because of the gender reversal. Part of me thought when I read this and then read a little bit about who Shakespeare was writing it for, this Lord Risley character who was into racy, libertine, sexualized poetry. Part of me wondered if this was kind of a cougar fantasy for him. And you see this trope appear whenever some female teacher is caught sleeping with a high school student or something like that. And it's always framed in this way that is sort of saying, oh, well, you know, this is so, this is like, the fantasy of every high school boy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's like, there's this weird like high five. Yeah, thing, yeah, which right? which is which is kind of gr- it's gross, right? And and it's wrong. And when the gender dynamic is reversed, we rightly see it as what it is, which is sexually predatory behavior. And I think most people, to be fair, do see it that way and see it as something that's sick and wrong. But but I I can sort of see how you know you, and you see this is a trope that runs through a lot of different types of entertainment, particularly before people were a little bit more sensitized to, to power dynamics that you know make this type of sexual predation possible and, and so troubling. But you see this kind of trope of this this idea of the cougar stalking young men and all of that. And when you and you read this and you're like, okay, that's one interpretation. But Shakespeare is pretty steady in the way he portrays what happens to Adonis as yeah well i I like ugly i mean to 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 your point i was really well i wasn't surprised when i read the introduction because i read the introduction before i read the poem but having read the poem it was very surprising to me the way even the scholarly introduction in the pelican shakespeare edition that i was reading and this i think also manifests in just reading casually about the poem online it's not like i you know, to be clear, I didn't do like a deep Venus and Adonis dive prior to mm-hmm. recording this podcast. But I was really struck by the fact that almost the apologetics around the poem of like Shakespeare's audience would have read this as being a amusing take on what would happen if the goddess of love were denied. You know, it's supposed to be funny. I mean, it's a more academic way of rendering it, but it amounts to, or to me at least, it amounts to the same basic thing of this isn't really problematic. This is, you know, even if it might seem that way to contemporary eyes, that's not the way it was intended. And I I just find it very hard to reconcile that perspective with what we see on the page. You know, I mean, I feel like Shakespeare's writing is pretty clearly... You know, he he doesn't have a great opinion of Venus in this context. Yes. I think she's portrayed as definitely a predator. 
I mean, and there's a lot to unpack there with the way female desire is construed in the play and everything else. But she's depicted very animalistically. She's like sweating. Her ardor for Adonis is is all-consuming and relentless in a way that you could see it portrayed in a comedic fashion, but it also comes across as, considering this is supposed to be the the epitome or sort of the paragon of, of beauty and love, uh, not particularly flattering. So yeah, yeah, that's comedic, but it's also a commentary on a, on a different level. This is not the Ovid telling or the sort of classic Venus and Adonis consensual sort of relationship. Yeah, it's, it's not thing. a companionship. It, it's not a like an unequal but still consensual companionship of a more powerful woman and a less powerful younger man, right? Like it's not that. It is clearly Venus pursuing a, a lust object who is not interested in her. And yes. who's not interested in her advances. And to, but Will, to the point you were saying, the, the animalistic thing, which I think actually keys a pretty important question about this poem. Right. So I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to get into an extended discourse on the feelings of Adonis's horse. But there <laughs> is the moment in the poem where Adonis escapes Venus, goes to get on his horse to ride away to go hunting. And his horse slips the bridle because the horse has caught scent of a mare in heat and wants to pursue the mare. Which, by the way, I I will note, has one of the really amazing lines in the poem, which is, He sees his love and nothing else he sees, for nothing else with his proud sight agrees. Which I thought was a really amazing, concise, and poetic way of expressing this, Mm. this type of desire. Nonetheless... The point of the horse being mostly that it it very much parallels what is going on with Venus and feels like it is meant to be read as a, you know, another embodiment of the same kind of emotion that Venus is going through. And I think that, that goes to an important question about the poem, which is, you know, while there is all this stuff about sexual assault and and harassment again to use modern terms not to say that that's the way shakespeare would have talked about it but nonetheless those things are there that said given that the ultimate result of all this and we can talk about the degree to which it is a result or just another thing that happens but regardless the result of this is adonis's death is the poem more meant to be an exploration of themes of sexual harassment and assault Or is it more about the negative consequences of the human experience of desire? Yeah, I think it's probably the latter. And it's and it's interesting, right? Because I think when you're talking about these issues of sexual assault, it's often about power and the desire to dominate more than sometimes desire per se, but the two sort of are commingled, I think, in the way Shakespeare tells the story. And, you know, I think because he lacks kind of the vocabulary and the social mores around these ideas that we have in the modern world of sexual harassment and sexual assault in more of a legal sense and more of a social sense, he's still making the powerful point that what happens to Adonis is wrong and ultimately tragic. 
and the result of Venus's behavior. And in a way, you sort of arrive at the same destination of finding this to be something that is worthy of condemnation, even if you don't have all of the explicit terminology laid out. And it's because Venus is in this powerful position of being a goddess and also an older woman chasing down a younger man who is not capable and certainly not desiring of the attention and you know fear. yeah so, so will that to that idea right or that point about him not having the vocabulary i i actually have to say that one thing that really struck me in the poem was how modern his account of adonis's feelings is right i yes. mean in that he doesn't talk about adonis being angry at venus really i i think there's a few points in the poem where Adonis is, you know, expresses irritation, but he, the the emotion that he really keys in on more is Adonis's shame, right? It's like the thing that Adonis feels as a result of this is less a feeling of anger and more a feeling of like almost like embarrassment. To, to just read a couple quick lines: she red and hot as coals of glowing fire; he red for shame, but frosty in desire. Or another one, pure shame and odd resistance made him fret, which bred more beauty in his angry eyes. You know, and and that really struck me because I feel like, you know, I (sighs) myself, having not experienced this behavior, like I can't speak to it as, Mm. you know, directly. But I feel like shame is always reported as one of the real overriding results of being the victim of this kind of behavior. Yeah, no, right? that's, I think that that's totally right. So, uh, you know, so, and I, and I feel like that goes to show Shakespeare's brilliance and his perspicacity about human behavior and human emotion and feeling, which is, even though he wouldn't talk about these things in the terms that we do today, nonetheless, he has a very keen eye for how people actually feel and react yeah. to the way other people treat them. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that's right. I mean, I think it's a powerful case for the idea that we he might not have had our very explicit legalistic terminology around some of these acts, which he may not have had that, but he had a powerful sense of what abuse is. And I think that's something that runs throughout human history. I think people recognize unjust and wrong behavior and also recognize that people's reactions to being put in that position really run the gamut. I mean, reading this, I, we both felt some strong Me Too resonances throughout this. And, and to be more explicit about it, I thought about all of these uh, women that were testifying about Harvey Weinstein's sexual assault and sexual harassment and how in many cases their reactions really ran the gamut from, I mean, very rare was the instance of a woman talking about in the moment, really confronting him or throwing things back in his face or anything like that. There was a sense of fear and shame, even though that shame was unwarranted, and sometimes capitulation, you know, because of the pressure that they felt they were under or the way that it was easier to comply, quote unquote, with what he was asking them to do. Well, and, and in the, some isn't, cases, that, isn't that absolutely what happens in this poem? Totally, right? totally. I mean, they do end up, I don't remember if they actually consummate, but but it, it seems like Adonis does ultimately give in to Venus's advances. And it is in the face of just the constant pressure of, you know, he can't get away from her. And it's, she's making all these arguments about how, you know, like, 
the god Mars, the god of war, is obsessed with me. And if he's obsessed with me, then how could you possibly think that you shouldn't be sleeping yeah. with me, given that I want to? You know, like it's there's a, yeah, there's a lot of psychological pressure here. And I think again, you know, to your point, this is the genius of Shakespeare here, which is that he recognizes that despite his depictions of violent rape in other plays he recognizes that forms of coercion and abuse and sexual assault don't necessarily have to proceed from the stereotype of somebody jumping out and ambushing you in the in a parking lot that's like abandoned and violently assaulting you it can be insidious and a long-term pressure that puts you in a terrible position if you're the victim of that. And I think that's kind of a, that's kind of testament to that too that it, it's not this kind of well if it wasn't if it wasn't just sort of this violent encounter then it you know it's not really rape or sexual assault or sexual harassment uh, what have you. He recognizes there's a lot more to it than that. And I think that's a pretty powerful testament to the relevance of this poem. Um, though yeah, I don't and, think, and yeah. to that point, I wonder if part of the reason that this poem has been sort of consigned to the apocrypha of Shakespeare's works, leaving aside the fact that he's primarily known as a playwright and it doesn't fit into our main understanding of what his works are, regardless, I do wonder if some of the lack of knowledge about this poem has to do with the fact that we as a society or as a culture are only now grappling with questions that this poem is asking. G- going back to the idea that we were talking about where where the poem is like a little bit dismissed as being comedic to his audience or, you know, wouldn't really be read as being about sexual assault or those sorts of, or, or the cougar thing that you were talking about. I think now, and obviously there's been a growing consciousness of this over the last couple of years and decades, but I think particularly now in, in, the, in light of Me Too and everything that's come to light with that, where we have like a much better understanding of these kinds of power structures, where I think probably 30 years ago, mm-hmm. the idea of an older woman coercing a younger man for sex would be viewed as not really... You know, maybe it's not great, but it's not really a problem. You know, it's not really bad. Whereas I think now we have a much more acute understanding of the power dynamics at play and why that is really damaging and problematic and harmful yeah. to the subject of it. Yeah, and I and you know, and to be clear, I think these interpretations can kind of run in parallel when you read this poem, in that it contains elements of both, right? I do think that there are elements of comedy in this poem, particularly in how Venus is described. But it also ends with Adonis running off and getting killed by a boar, and it ends with a lament by Venus, where she is attributing to all of the problems that men and women have with one another and why the course of love never runs smooth because of this founding myth, which I think is, when you read it, Venus does not come across terribly sympathetically it doesn't really seem that she gets why things went wrong in a more enduring and serious way which is you know not not all that out of step for lots of sexual predators uh in in real life as well but it is it is interesting you know i think that the ending and the sort of tragedy of adonis running off uh and and being killed after 
having the consummation or near consummation with Venus, that that definitely shows that it's not meant to be solely this comedic poem just for the entertainment yeah, of and I Shakespeare's think that, patron. I think that begs a really important question. I think it's difficult. I, I sort of raised this earlier, but we haven't talked about it yet, which is reading the poem, it's difficult to make a direct connection between the long and extended first part of the poem, which is this day and night where Venus is basically courting Adonis and trying to coerce him into having sex with her, and the ultimate result, which is his death, right? On paper, they seem to be two disparate, unconnected events. Until you sort of make the conclusion that, well, Adonis' desire to go hunting, while probably genuine to some degree, is also very clearly an effort to get away from Venus's attentions. Yeah. And so it does feel like Adonis's death is, you know, not that Venus kills him. You know, I don't think you could go to the extreme of saying that it's her fault that he dies. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, the circumstance in which he finds himself when he dies does feel like well, to me, you, you can tell me if you don't agree with me or if I'm reading too much into it, which I very well may be. But to me, it does feel like it is at least to some degree the result of him fleeing and trying to get away from her. Yeah, and, and I think that actually the implications might be even worse than that in the sense that Venus compares her ecstasy uh, at being with Adonis to a little death, essentially— euphemism for sort of sexual ecstasy right and it's followed by adonis running off and meeting his actual death and so in that sense while i wouldn't necessarily say that it's suicidal ideation or anything along those lines and then you know actual suicide by adonis it does leave you in a pretty dark place with how she kind of got what she wanted and he runs off and dies right so in that sense there's there's actually i think a pretty strong connection between the two and maybe you have to be approaching it you know in the modern era to sort of fully see that but i i can't imagine that that did not escape shakespeare based on the way he wrote it and even some of the language he wrote so i guess all of this is to say pretty heavy stuff in this poem the themes are are pretty serious, and I, I don't think either of us really thought when we sat down with this one that, and tell me if you disagree, that it would be quite so relevant and quite so intense of a piece, especially for our first mini-episode. I don't know, do you, do you agree I, with that? Oh, completely. I mean, I thought, I mean, first of all, I think it's telling that we weren't even planning to do this poem. We only decided to do this because... We discovered that it was written when the playhouses were closed and we're all in quarantine right now. It felt like it had a direct relevance to our lives in a very ephemeral way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was very surprised reading it, how modern it felt, you know, and how directly relevant to a lot of conversations that we're having right now. And, and in that regard, I mean, I think it goes to that same kind of descriptive genius that we've talked about with Shakespeare that I I think is what we see also with other great writers where, you know, like this is what I always love about reading Tolstoy, 
you know, is you read Tolstoy and he'll, you know, in the midst of these gigantic scale novels, he'll have some passage where he talks about the feeling that a person has. And you read it and it is a perfect description of something that you yourself have experienced. And Mm. it's like, not only have I felt this emotion and would never have been able to express it so concisely or so perfectly as, as Tolstoy does, but also, I don't even know that I would have realized that I had had that emotion until I read it in Anna Karenina or War and Peace or whatever. And I feel like Shakespeare's is the same here and, and throughout, but I think in particular in, in this poem, which is more contemplative and more of a, a, of a disquisition, I guess, on, mm-hmm. on a theme where he's just showing that our ability as humans to process and to understand what people are feeling and going through has not changed, even if the language that we've adopted to talk about this, those things has become more sophisticated. Yeah, that makes sense. And honestly, I couldn't think of a better note to end on about the enduring relevance of Shakespeare and even how some of his minor work uh, connects to our world today. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, we will return to our regularly scheduled programming with our episode on Henry VI, Part 3. Thanks for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com. 